If you would take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, we are going to finish the chapter today. So um, we'll finish chapter 3, and that will put us at about halfway through the book of Galatians as we continue in this study. The, the history of the world is very often a story of division. Um, for as many ways as we as people find to, to be united, it would seem that we can find ten times as many things that would separate us, that would cause division. And many of the things that divide us are at the core of, of who we are. We can think about race, race and ethnicity. Uh, they have continued to be a major source of division and even war in the world throughout all of history. Uh, Andrew and I are reading, or we're, I rather I would, should say we're listening to a book called The Hiding Place on MP3s. It's it's a book that talks about the life of a woman named Corrie Ten Boom. I don't know if you've ever heard of Corrie Ten Boom, but um, she was a woman in Holland who was in Holland during World War II and, and ended up hiding Jews in her house, eventually was taken to prison and then later to a concentration camp because of doing those things. It's an inspiring story of God's faithfulness, and yet, as Andrew and I have talked about it, we've been reminded that that this was a reality, the reminder of a world where people were systematically exterminated. They were killed, most often because of their ethnicity, because of their religious heritage. We'd like to think that hatred across these kind of racial lines, that that's something of the past, that's, that's something that we've dealt with, but that would be very naive. Uh, in recent days, we've been given examples. We've seen genocide, and just to give one, in a place like Rwanda, where people are killed because one class of people decides that they are that the other class of people is inferior. And while race relations in America seem to improve, there's still legitimate reason to talk about racism in America. It's not simply between blacks and white, but between all races, between all ethnicities, Hispanics and Latinos and Asians, not to mention those of Middle Eastern or even African descent. All ethnicities are looked down upon or even hated by some other group of people simply because of the color of their, their skin or the nation that they were born in. Beyond race and ethnicity, class distinctions, they compound this problem of division, of people being looked down upon because of the job that they have, or the amount of money that they have, or the the amount of education that they have. We can think around the world of a, of a caste system in India, um, where there's this is a sort of systemized form of prejudice based on class. It's rooted in religious beliefs, but it's it's it finds its foundation in, in what people have monetarily or who they are, or how they were born, what class of society they were born in. And we too, not just in India, but around the world, we look down on those that are below us. We consider them less than human because of their place in society. So we have ethnic distinctions, we have class divisions, and throughout human history, we've also seen sexism. Social tension between men and women has always existed, and it's alive and well in the world today. We can think of nations who repress, who reject women simply because of their gender. They subject them to humiliation, to abuse, even to death. The issue of unborn baby girls around the world who are killed simply because they lack a Y chromosome. And so they are murdered. 
here in the United States, we try to wrestle with this difference between men and women. And we find ourselves, it's hard to, to strike this balance between different genders. Men are still often degrading of women, and women um, have in turn come to ridicule men and masculinity. And all this confusion has arisen in our nation, and it leads to so many other issues and, and sins, and the gender lines have in no way ceased to exist. Ethnicity and social status and gender, these are at the core of who we are as individuals. And sadly, they're at the core of division and hatred and prejudice and war in our world. It's a strange and sad thing. And while it's easy for us to look around the world to to point the finger, we all know that in ourselves we see the roots of these things, the roots of division, the roots of discrimination not just in ourselves, but even in the church at large. And if these issues are prevalent today, if they've been prevalent throughout human history, then we would be foolish to think that the Bible does not address them. And it, and it does. But it doesn't come at them like a, like a politician or like a, a protest sign or some sort of empty slogan that the, the attempts of our society to, to cure all of these ills, to, to mend division, it's... It's often so simplistic. They just ask that we would all get along, that we would find unity in the midst of diversity, that we would learn to be colorblind. But if these things work, then it would show that the issue is not as deep as it really is. The issue is, is deeper. It's rooted much deeper in our sinfulness, in our humanity. And so there needs to be a deeper change of attitude in us. In fact, we find in our passage today in Galatians chapter 3 that unity across Racial lines is a specific implication. It's a fruit of our having been justified, been made right by God's grace through faith in Jesus. We've seen ethnic divisions in in the book of Galatians, haven't we, between uh, Jews and Gentiles. You remember specifically when the Jews, including Peter and Barnabas, they were separating themselves from the Gentiles during mealtime. Do you remember that back in uh, Galatians 2? And then throughout the book, Paul is going head-to-head with the Judaizers, who are essentially saying that unless you become Jewish, you are not truly right before God. You can't be a son of God unless you are circumcised and you obey the law. And here in Galatians 3, 26-29, Paul applies the, the, the core truth of the gospel to this issue of division within the church. And here's his main point. It's very simple. We are, we are all one in Christ. We are all one in Christ. Let's read Galatians 3 verses 26 through 29. And as we are are reading that, we're thinking about our union with Christ and our union with one another. I want you to take note of how Paul thinks of in terms of all, this word all people, and then he distills it down and says one, we are all one. And as he does that, he keeps emphasizing that we are all one in Christ. Those are your key words, all One and in Christ. I'll try to emphasize those as I read it, but just note them for yourself as we, as we read Galatians 3, 26 through 29. Paul writes, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed your, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one 
in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. We're going to consider this morning three ways that Paul mentions that we are united to Christ and thereby one with one another. And then we're going to talk about this radical union, unity amongst each other that the union with Christ brings for us, that he gives us across ethnicity and class and gender. But the first way that Paul tells us that we are all one in Christ is by emphasizing this in verse 26. He says, we are all sons of God through faith in Christ. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ. Verse 25 says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Look back at verse 24 and try to see the connection. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The connection between verses 24 and 25 and verse 26 is that while we were formerly under a tutor, we remember we used that word nanny kind of as a, a guardian of sorts, now we are full-fledged sons through faith in Christ. Faith has come and, and ushered us from one state into another, from the place of being under the law to the place of being sons and daughters of God. There's a time in a child's life when they no longer need a babysitter. As a father of young children, I look forward to the day that I can say to my girls, Mom and I are going out. Uh, take care of yourselves. <laughs> Won't that be wonderful? It's a long way off. But when that day comes, my children will have entered into a different stage of life, a stage that's that's closer to adulthood. They no longer need a babysitter. We said last week that Paul was referencing this, this Greek tradition of having a, a nanny of sorts who watched over a, a child until they were mature. And Paul here says that we no longer need a nanny. We don't need a tutor anymore. We are no, we no longer need a babysitter because we are now full-fledged sons and daughters of God. It's an amazing statement of, of who we are through faith in Christ. And it's one that we're going to talk more about next week as we think about adoption as sons in chapter 4. But what's amazing about this is, is the key place that it holds in Galatians. One commentator, Timothy George, says this, Galatians 2.6, this verse, is the fulcrum verse. So you imagine a, the, the middle of, of a board, right, the scales. It's the fulcrum verse of chapters 3 and 4. Everything Paul has said from chapter 3, verse 6, through chapter 3, verse 25, flows into this verse, just as everything that follows from 3.27 to 4.31 issues from it. This verse says plainly what Paul was arguing for throughout this central section of the letter, and it's this, the true children of Abraham are really the children of God. And how are we children of God? Look at the verse. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Through faith in Christ Jesus. We are not children of God because of who we are, because of what we have, because of what we have done. We are children of God through faith in all that Jesus has accomplished. We're children of God because we have come to believe that Jesus is that promised seed of Abraham. John 1.12 sums it up really well. It says, But as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. 
How do we gain the right to become children of God? By receiving him, by believing in his name. Our faith, our faith rests in the name of Jesus and the fact that Jesus lived in perfect submission to the law of God. Remember that law, all it did for us was expose our unrighteousness. But for Jesus, it highlighted his righteousness. It had the opposite effect in Jesus. It showed that he could keep the law. And our faith is in the truth that Jesus has died for our unrighteousness. And he offers us life and then sonship through belief in his name. Now, the reality I think that Paul's emphasizing here is that if we are sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ, then we now have the same father. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters. It's an amazing thing that he has done. I have two biological sisters. I I don't have any brothers. But in Christ, I have older brothers like like Joel and and Paul. They're my older brothers in the faith. And I have younger brothers. Uh, I think about Matt and Ramel and, and Jed. These guys are my, my younger brothers in the faith. And we are, we are brothers together. And I get more sisters. I'm happy with my two sisters, but I'll take some more sisters too. I get older sisters and, and younger sisters. And, and we are this, this family. We're a family through faith in Christ Jesus. What an amazing thing. God has created this amazing new family. If you've ever, if you've, Ever felt like you never had a family? Like you lacked a father or a brother or a sister? Maybe you're far away from your family or those that you love, you feel alone. Know that, that in Christ, you are a part of a wonderful family that isn't just here, but, but spans the globe. But, but this is such a beautiful expression of it, isn't it? What I love about Grace Fellowship Church is that it is a family. We model this well. What I love about our potlucks is that we eat together because that's what a family does. We're brothers and sisters. We have the same father. And so we are a family. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ. The second way Paul shows us that we are all one in Christ is by saying that we are all baptized into and clothed with Christ. We are all baptized into and clothed with Christ. It's verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Notice the link, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. The link here is not that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. That, that is not the link. Baptism is not the grounds for our salvation. Remember, Paul's arguing throughout this letter that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. That's what he keeps telling the people because the Judaizers are coming in there. What he's not saying here is circumcision is not necessary for salvation, but baptism. Baptism is. If you're not baptized, then you're not a son of God. That, that is not what he is saying. The question in part is, is Paul speaking about spiritual baptism or physical water baptism? And the answer is, Yes. The purpose of baptism, of course, is to show outwardly what has happened inwardly. It's to show all who are present this visual picture of what Christ has already done in us. And scripture, in fact, speaks so interchangeably of of salvation and baptism that it would seem that in the early Christian world, the the thought of an unbaptized Christian was akin to a a potluck without rice, right? It's just, it didn't make sense. It, it wasn't normal. The people who came to Christ were, were baptized. To be a Christian was to be 
baptized. When we place our, our faith in Christ for salvation, there is this spiritual baptism that occurs. We are associated with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we've repented of our sins. We've died to our old way of living, and we've been raised up to walk in newness of life. I feel like that's one of the key implications for me believing in, in a believer's baptism by immersion, because that's the picture. The picture is of death, of being buried under the water, and being raised up to walk in new life. We've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and God's Spirit now lives in us and dwells within us. And all of this happens at the moment that we place our faith in Jesus. Water baptism pictures this this miracle. It doesn't accomplish the miracle, but it shows others outwardly what has occurred inwardly. An outward sign of what God has done within us. But what else does Paul refer to? He says, you're all baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. Paul refers to us being clothed with Christ, which is probably closely linked with baptism. I was reading, this is interesting, it's hard to know how baptism was practiced in Paul's days, but we do know that the early church in the ceremony of baptism was was fairly elaborate. Um, it involved the confession of faith as well as kind of a, a public break with sin. And it may sound strange to us, but people were often baptized without any clothes on at all. Before entering the water, they would take off all their old clothes. They would then be go into the water and sometimes be submerged three times. Sometimes once, but sometimes three in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then they would exit, and when they would exit the water, they would receive a new white robe. That, that taking off of the old clothes symbolizes leaving behind that, that person's former life. And the new white robe symbolizes the putting on of Christ, the walking in the newness of life that he had given. And all of this imagery is probably in Paul's mind here, but I don't know that it's what is at the forefront of his mind. Remember what Paul is showing. He's showing that we are all one in Christ. He's shown that we all have one Father, and now he says we've all been baptized, probably referring to both spirit and water baptism, and that we have all been clothed with Christ. This, he's saying to the Galatians and to us, unites us. It's something that we all hold in common. We've all been baptized. We've all been clothed with Christ. So therefore, we are all one. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 and 13. It's very parallel. It says, For even as the body is one, yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Let me read that again. It's not, it's it's hard to grasp. But For even as the body is one, and yet there are many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Again, that emphasis on, on unity. We have all done this. We have all been baptized. And when we were baptized, we were baptized, he says here, into one body. Uh, baptism is often called the uh, an initiatory rite, kind of the, the first thing that happens. It's the ordinance that brings us into the church, into the body of Christ. And again, uh, in the early church, thinking back, very often baptism would take place on Easter Eve. Uh, and those who were baptized, they would they would take communion with the church at large for the first time on Easter morning. 
It was the sign that brought them into the body of Christ. This is in part, to be honest, why before we take communion today, we're going to say that it's for those who have been baptized. Because baptism is the sign of having come to faith in Christ and having been baptized into his one body. It's this, it, it does not do anything for salvation, but it is the sign that brings us into the body of Christ. Now, if you're here and you have not been baptized, but you have placed your faith in Christ Jesus, you have been spiritually baptized into Christ. You don't have to be baptized in water to be baptized spiritually into Christ. And you have clothed yourselves with Christ. And you are a member of the body of Christ. So then why should we be baptized? Well, I think first because Jesus says to. Sometimes my kids ask me, why should I do this? And I very, I have said, I don't try not to say it often, but because I said so. <laughs> Jesus says that we should be baptized. And, and it's obedience to his command is partly why we are baptized. Secondly, because it's this witness of what has happened, of the new creation. Uh, my sister-in-law used to go to a church in Boston, and their baptismal was raised up in, in a high part of the church, and it faced the street. It was not at the front of the auditorium, but it faced the street. And when baptisms happened, people would go up there and the church would exit outside of the church and stand and look up at the person being baptized. The point was that they were baptized for the church to see, but also for the world to see. For them to say, my life has changed. I am someone totally different. You think about early church uh, where they, and, and throughout history, people go to a public place, to, to a lake, to a river. And it's before the world that we say, I'm joining myself to Christ. I'm getting rid of my old way of living, and I'm being raised to be a new person in Jesus. So that's another reason to be a witness to the world of the new creation that you are in Christ. And the the last one is to, to place yourself as a member of a local church. That's one of the requirements for to be a member of this church, not because it has anything to do with your salvation but because it is the sign that Jesus has given us to do, and because it is the sign that, that as, as Paul wrote, for by one spirit we are all baptized into one body. We are baptized into the body and into Christ. So if you've not been baptized, we would love to do it. And, and, and if you are put your faith in Christ, if you are part of the one body, then I think that Jesus says to do it and to place yourself under um, around this family of God that you would be a member of a church that can encourage and hold you accountable um, to the faith that you proclaim. So we are all one in Christ. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ. We are all baptized into and clothed with Christ. And then the third and final way Paul shows us that we are all one in Christ is this. He says, we are all children of Abraham because of Christ. We are all children of Abraham because of Christ. Verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Verse 29, Paul summarizes what he's been saying up to this point, and then he sets the stage for the thoughts that are going to follow. He uses that word heir. You are heirs according to the promise. That's going to play a prominent role in, in, in chapter 4. Um, but it would seem that in many ways he's drawing a parallel that being a son of Abraham is very closely linked with being a son of God. We remember that Paul's gone to great lengths to show that it's by faith that you are a child of Abraham. It's not by lineage. It's not by being descended from him. A person doesn't need to be a physical descendant of Abraham to be a child of Abraham. We are children of Abraham by faith. 
it's interesting you find that word seed here again. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. It's the same word. You are Abraham's seeds. You remember back in verse 16, Paul was emphasizing that the promise made to Abraham was made to specifically a singular seed and that the seed was Christ. He made that argument. The promise was made to Christ. Now here he's emphasizing that we are all the seed, plural, of the descendants of Abraham because we belong to the one seed that was predicted to Christ. We are heirs together. We are children of Abraham. And we receive all the blessings and the promises that are given to him. So again, the point is we are all one in Christ. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ. We are all baptized into and clothed with Christ. We are all children of Abraham because of Christ. And the result of this union is one that that affects everything. It affects the core of our being into the very realms that we talked about that cause division. Our ethnicity, our social class, our gender. Paul tells us that because of our union with Christ, all grounds for division are gone. All grounds for division are gone because of our union with Christ. Look at this in, in verse 27. He kind of brings it to, to, I'm sorry, verse 28. He says, after saying, you are all sons of God. You are all baptized into Christ. You are all descendants of Abraham. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. How are we all one? It's in Christ Jesus. As those who believe in God's word, we understand that everyone in the world is united in some way in the fact that we are all children of of Abraham. We are created in the image of God. We are fallen because of our sin, and that, that, that unites us. Issues of ethnicity and social status and gender shouldn't change the way that we view others because we have these things in common. It's kind of a basis for the unity of all humanity. But then for those of us who have been brought by faith in Christ, we have reason to be unified across all possible divisions. In the church, there's no place for a pride that comes from our ethnicity, Jew or Greek. There's no place for pride that comes from our social class, slave nor free. There's no place for pride that comes from the gender that we have, male or female. None of these things make us more acceptable to God, more spiritual, less acceptable to God, less spiritual. Paul uses the imagery of the body of Christ that we've referenced in, in Romans 12, 3 through 5. He's talking again about spiritual gifts like he was in 1 Corinthians 12. And he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. He's talking there about spiritual gifts. We have different gifts, but we're all one. And here he's saying we're different in countless other ways, but we're all one in Christ. It's this this body illustration that, that Christ is the body, and we are all a part of the body because we are now in Christ. We are joined to him, and so we are now unified as this one body. 
Because we have Christ in common, all other reasons for unity or division don't matter. They're all secondary. In Christ, ethnicity is not a reason for division or unity. In Christ, ethnicity is not a reason for unity or division. Christ has not accepted you based on your ethnicity. Often, uh, Christianity throughout history has been called the white man's religion. It's completely opposite of what the purpose of the gospel is. The gospel is that it is, it, there is no ethnicity that can only come to Christ. There are certain religions that we can look at, and there's certain people from certain nations, and they seem to be the ones that come to it. But when you think about the gospel, it, it has spanned across the globe that all people can come to the gospel because ethnicity is not a reason for you to be accepted or rejected by God. Now, in Jesus, we still have our ethnicity. In Christ, you are still Filipino. I am still an Ohioan, whatever that means. That's about all I can do. Um, <laughs> you, you maybe are from the South. You're still Southern. Or uh, from Colombia, you're still Colombian. You, you're, your ethnicity doesn't change. But the, the thing is, and I want to say this as best I can, none of that really matters. The beauty of our different ethnicities remains, but we celebrate the fact, and we celebrate the fact that, that Christ has, has a bride that is from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. But at the core, our ethnicity matters little compared to the fact that we are in Christ. That is the purpose of our unity. We are a new humanity, Paul says in Ephesians 2. We are united in Christ. So Grace Fellowship Church, We've said this before. We are not a Filipino church. And I want to go as far as to say this. We don't want to be a Filipino church. Is that right? We don't want to be a Filipino church. Why? Because we want to be the church. And the church doesn't divide or unite over external differences. Because of the fact that God has chosen as his children people apart from distinctions. And so if God has chosen his children apart from all those distinctions, then we don't want to choose people because of those distinctions. These distinctions, there's no superiority spiritually or in any other way by one ethnicity. God has chosen a bride from all tribes and tongues and people and nations. Now, again, are you still Filipino and I, am I still Ohioan and Southern and, and anything else that we have? Yes. That's the beauty of it, but that is not what our unity is based on. In a world that that, divide, that divides and, and fights and even kills over ethnicity, the church stands united as Christ's body, as this new humanity, and it shows the power of the cross. I think the danger of saying we want to be a church, what some would call maybe an ethnic church, the danger of that is that it doesn't reflect what Jesus has done in the gospel doesn't reflect the fact that we shouldn't be divided along those lines. And I want to be very careful about that. The church is a new humanity that Christ has brought from all cultures and all peoples. So ethnicity doesn't matter. In Christ, class is not a basis for division or unity. He talks about slave or free. Can you imagine what kind of uh, um, a ruckus it would have caused in the early world when a slave master came to Christ and then his slave came to Christ. And now these guys are brothers. 
it totally cha- what are we supposed to do with this now and paul addresses that he never outright says get rid of slavery but slowly and but sure and surely it it just dissolves in the christian world because it doesn't make sense anymore there is no slave nor free when you come to our church we you know part of being a member isn't that you have to show us your bank account so we can see if you're too rich or, or too poor we don't consider where you work or your level of education, your mental capacity, your age, um, who your parents are. You know, all those things you fill out maybe at the end of, of some sort of survey. You know, this is for classification purposes. What is your ethnicity? Um, you know, how much money do you make in a year? Uh, it, those kind of things. Uh, we We don't talk about those things because we are not brothers and sisters in Christ because of our standing in society. We're not uh, children of God because of who we are. We are brothers and sisters because of who we are in Christ. Christ has not chosen us because uh, we are great, because we are rich, because we are powerful. He's chosen us because it was his good pleasure to do so. We are all one in him. We are accepted, and so therefore we accept anyone who would come in. In Christ, gender is not a basis for division or unity. That's a hot topic in our world today, isn't it? And some would say that the church does divide over gender, that it does create some sort of distinction, to which I would say, well, there there are different roles. God has given us different roles within the family and within the church. Men and women are called to do different things, but these roles don't place individuals on different tiers A man is not more acceptable to God than a woman, and a woman is not more acceptable to God than a man. We're united together, and gender is not a place for division among us. It's amazing when you think about this, what what, all of the things in the world that have caused this this division, you know, ethnicities and, and class distinctions and gender distinctions. And throughout human history, the world has been trying to bring these things together. And it just, it's like oil and water. They just, we, there's always this division. And the beautiful thing is that only the church can do what people have tried to do throughout all of human history. Only the church can come together across all of these lines because we find one thing that we all have in common and we come together for that one thing. And it's Jesus in Christ. We are united. We are all a part of his body. We are all a part of his household. We are all all a part of this new humanity that he has created. And so all of these other things, while they still exist, they fade to the background. Our unity is not based on them. It's based on the fact that we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we are united. God forbid that we as a church would then let those kind of divisions creep in. Jesus has saved all of us from different ways so that we would display his glory as the the varied body of Christ from all tribe and tongue and people and nation. And he does it for the sake of his glory, to, to see his name spread in the world to all peoples. So, Grace Fellowship Church, we are all one in Christ. Our unity is based on our common belief in Jesus.